So I, I'm especially excited to uh, introduce our speaker today. I guess I should introduce myself first, though. I'm Bobby Chesney, director of the Strauss Center and professor of law across the street. Um, our guest is Ben Wittes of the Brookings Institution. Ben's a senior fellow in governance studies. I was spending some time this morning thinking about how to describe in a pithy way Ben's career. And what I decided to emphasize is that He's got about the most varied and interesting career path of just about anybody I know who works in these national security circles. Uh, among other things to highlight, he was the Washington Post uh, opinion or editorial page writer for Legal Affairs for about a decade, uh, previously worked at Legal Times. He's written a series of books that I very much wish I'd written, and this is just the latest one of them. Uh, past hits include Detention and Denial, which is a, a piercing and and provocative account of the ways in which we just refuse to debate directly the detention issues of the past uh, 13, 14 years now. He's founder, co-founder, current editor-in-chief, and by far the guiding force and spirit of a blog that I have the good fortune to be part of uh, called Lawfare. Um, he routinely testifies before Congress, and when he's not publicly testifying and advising different parts of the government, he's privately doing it, and everybody reaches out to him on both sides of the aisle, and, and in quite literally all the branches. Um, most recently, he's written this, The Future of Violence, Robots and Germs, Hackers and Drones, Confronting a New Age of Threat, which uh, is a scary and fascinating account of the ways that disruptive technological change unsettle any number of architectures, and he's going to talk about that with us this morning. It's, it's co-written with, with our friend uh, Gabby Bloom of Harvard Law School, and uh, it's getting a lot of attention. We're lucky to have him here in Austin today. Ben, welcome. So thanks for that uh, effusively kind introduction, some of which was even true. Um, <laughs> So I was on a late night uh, radio show today, um, and you know these are uh, always a uh, interesting thing to do, and they involve um, particularly when you you involve not just the sort of uh, pathologies and manias of the host in question, but also anybody who happens to call in, and so um, they went to questions after I'd given, my, I thought, my sort of sober talk about the future of violence, which I'm about to give to you. And um, uh, the host goes to a question, and you know, usually I'm ready for anything, because you, know, you get used to, you know, I don't usually talk with notes, I don't use PowerPoint, I try to be able to think on my feet. But this one really threw me. The caller wanted to know, if I thought we would have to evacuate the planet, because he had seen a movie in which there were, uh, there was a, I don't remember the name of the movie, um, but there was a, um, a, an epidemic caused by uh, one of the types of people, apparently, that I talk about in this book, uh, and it had gotten so bad that we had to evacuate the planet and go many light years away. Um, and so I was a little bit caught off guard by this, because that's really not the question I was expecting to be asked. I, I, I said, well, I certainly hope not, because we're not yet technically up to that uh, capacity. So if it really comes to that, we're in bad shape. So let me start by saying, I hope we will not have to evacuate the planet, because of anything <laughs> that I'm about to say. Um, and I also hope, going uh, to a more realistic uh, human being, um, 
uh, we actually talk a little bit about in the conclusion of the book. So the British astronomer, former astronomer royal Martin Rees, who's a very serious uh, astrophysicist and uh, uh, public intellectual in, in, in Britain, recently wrote a book <coughs> arguing that there was, for some of the same reasons we talk about in this book, arguing that there was a less than 50-50 chance in his judgment that the human race would survive the next 100 years. And his reasons were some of the same things we're talking about here, along with climate change, which is a set of issues that we do not address. Um, so let me also say that we are not in the camp of people who are assuming that we have entered a world of the impossibility of governance and the necessity of our demise as a species. Um, that's not the purpose of this book. Rather, the purpose of this book is to answer a different question, not are we doomed, but how, assuming it is possible to govern a world like the one we're entering into, how do you do it? And what are the theoretical underpinnings of an attempt to govern a world which, as I will try to describe in the next few minutes, anyone anywhere in the world can attack anyone anywhere else in the world from anywhere without regard to borders and without regard uh, to governments. So if that sounds like an outrageous uh, proposition, let me start by saying, yes, it is an outrageous proposition. That is not the world in which we right now live. But I want to start with uh, three hypothetical, but not very hypothetical, stories uh, that I think will show you that it's a little bit less outrageous than it may initially sound. So the first one, think back five years, almost to the day, to the BP oil spill. Um, now, on the day that the BP oil spill happened, um, and I remember these conversations, actually, uh, the, the assumed opinion in the US federal government security agencies on the day of the BP oil spill was that this was not an accident, but an attack. Now, one former senior official described this to me as you could, you could almost hear the huge sigh of relief throughout the intelligence uh, establishment when we realized this was not an attack, but an accident, and we could kick the whole thing to the EPA. But the moment that the Deepwater Horizon blew up, uh, understandably, uh, you know, 11 people are killed, there's a big explosion, and there's oil flooding into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the assumption was not that this was an accident. The assumption was that somebody had attacked it. And the reason that was the assumption is that it's a perfectly plausible hypothesis, right? There's no reason you couldn't bomb an oil well, an offshore oil well. And if that had happened, and just imagine for a minute that that had been what actually happened rather than an accident. Uh, but everything else remained exactly the same. Number, you know, and you can pick your choice of groups that might want to bomb an oil well. Um, environmental activists, Al Qaeda, you know, the FARC. If you want to sort of go in a South American direction, um, 
The oil flow is the same volume. The despoiling of the coast is the same. 11 people are killed. And I think we would all agree under those circumstances, A, that this was the most effective and significant attack on the United States since 9-11. And I think we would also agree on something else. Um, we would notice something that a lot of people didn't notice and we didn't, we didn't focus on in the context of the Deepwater Horizon explosion, which was that the defense of the coastline of the United States, capping the well, cleaning it up, um, taking care of the people in question, was largely not done by the US government. It was done by, which did not actually have the capacity to cap that well. The, the entity with the capacity to protect the coast of the United States in that context, and in the terrorist context in which I'm describing, was a foreign-owned international corporation. Um, so that's hypothetical number one. I think you have to just, just meditate for a moment on the security implications of the biggest attack on the United States since 9-11 and the actor capable of defending the United States is a multinational corporation. That's the only actor, actually, with, and it was also, by the way, legally the responsible party. Example number two. Uh, some of you are probably not old enough to remember the anthrax attacks. Um, some of you are. The anthrax attacks happened right after 9-11. Uh, basic facts are that somebody, the FBI believes it was a gentleman named Bruce Ivins, um, the uh, family of Bruce Ivins who committed suicide seven years later after the FBI was publicly ready to identify him and arrest him has always denied this. Um, so there's still an attribution question about the attack, but let's, let's assume that, but somebody laced a set of uh, letters sent through the mail um, with uh, very finely milled anthrax, uh, killed seven people. Um, now, for any of you who are planning a major biological terrorism event, um, I, I have a piece of advice for you. Don't, don't use the postal system as your distribution mechanism, and don't label the packages that you're sending anthrax. So uh, Bruce Ivins, assuming it was Bruce Ivins, uh, sent these letters, mostly to media organizations, also to Capitol Hill, um, that said, you opened the envelope and there was some powder and then there was a letter that said, now we have anthrax, get penicillin now. And so get, well, it turns out penicillin wasn't the right drug to treat you, but a lot of people got on Cipro. Because actually if you're going to kill a lot of people with anthrax, um, turns out that sealing it in an envelope and labeling it so that people can get on the appropriate drugs is not actually a very efficient way to do it. Uh, Ivans or whoever did this was clearly not trying to maximize casualties. He was trying to make some sort of statement, unclear exactly what sort of statement. Um, so Gabby and I asked the question, well, what if you were trying to maximize lethality? Um, what would you do? And so some of you may have computers out. I, I suggest you open a website called uh, www.diydrones.com. DIY Drones is an excellent website for the drones enthusiast, uh, of which I'm one. I, I, I like playing with drones. Um, and uh, it teaches you how to build 
all sorts of pretty powerful and amazing devices with drones. So Gabby and I thought, well, maybe our hypothetical uh, lethality maximizing Bruce Ivins instead of using the mail and labeling it would just use a small unmanned aerial vehicle and fly, say, across the stadium that's over there during game day and just sprinkle a bit of it. So I asked a molecular biologist friend of mine, is that technically plausible? Expecting him to tell me, no, Ben, that's actually much more difficult than you think. Here are the technical barriers. And to my surprise, he said something along the lines of, yeah, it's plausible, but it's a gross overinvestment in technology. This was not really what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Although it was good for the book. Um, and I said to him, well, what do you mean? He said, well, if you've got the anthrax, you don't really need the drone. Just drive down the street in a car and release it into the wind. You'll have, with your hand, you'll have very much the same effect. You don't really need the drone. Uh, so that was reassuring. <laughs> um, the, uh, back in 1993, the uh, uh, Office of Technology Assessment, uh, which is a now defunct scientific analysis office for Congress, estimated that a uh, that three kilograms, so not that much, you know, it's a it's a commercial volume, but it's not a huge volume of properly milled anthrax distributed by small private plane over a city could kill three million people. Um, so I take it from this that the lesson here is that the individual can have his own weapon of mass disruption program. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of this, um, but it's totally doable. Here's a third example. This is a true story. Um, a guy named Luis Mijangos, a hacker in Los Angeles. Now, Luis Mijangos is an unusual hacker. Um, he's now in federal prison, but um, he uh, wrote a piece of malware um, that incidentally stole a lot of people's credit card information, but that's not what he was about. He just did it as long as he was in their computers anyway. He might as well take the credit card information. Um, and Mihangos's uh, primary interest was in what the FBI uh, called sextortion, um, which is a portmanteau of sex and extortion. What he would do is he would take, uh, he would attack the computers of women and young underage girls. Uh, the FBI estimates that there were over 200 victims. Um, and he would turn the webcams of their computers outwards against them, uh, take pictures of them in various states of undress, and then send them the pictures with a demand that he would release them if they didn't make sex videos for him, which a number of them did. Uh, in one case, he actually did publicly distribute. Um, and um, the Bureau finally caught up with him um, because they were able to geolocate <coughs> Uh, some aspects of one of the transmissions, and they knocked on his door, executed a search warrant on his house, found his computers. They were never able to identify all the victims, um, and he eventually pled guilty and is now serving sentence. So my question is, change one fact about it, put him in Nigeria where all those spam emails you get every day come from, you, come from. put him in a place in which federal jurisdiction doesn't reach as easily leave everything else the same. And I think what that stands for is the proposition that you, individually, can literally be attacked from anywhere. Um, okay, so I want to put all this together. 
Um, number one, proposition number one, the power to attack is radically disseminating and proliferating. Um, we used to think of the power to have a weapons of mass destruction program as a creature of state authority. Uh, we have in recent years come to understand that there are certain non-state actors that we might have to imagine have you know, the capacity to launch completely devastating attacks. But I think we need to think about that as reaching its end, spot, end point. Now, James Fearon, who's a political scientist at Stanford, right after 9-11 wrote a beautifully provocative <coughs> little essay. This was back before cell phones had apps. But he, he said, um, imagine a world in which everybody's walking around with a little button on their cell phone. I call it the killer app now. But, um, that would destroy the world. Um, and I think that's at the, the sort of extreme version of the uh, power of it, the, the proliferation of the power to attack. Second thing that is proliferating is the uh, vulnerability to attack. Um, and think of the number of modes by which you can be attacked today. And think how many how much exponentially greater that number is, the number of modes of possible attack, than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. This is not to say we are all more vulnerable than we were, but the channels of vulnerability are much more numerous. And number three, and this is the part that a lot of people miss, the power of defense is also proliferating. So just as the Deepwater Horizon is controlled by a private corporation. Um, the private corporation Mandiant, which has now been bought up by another private company called FireEye, uh, conducts signals counterintelligence counter operations <coughs> against the People's Liberation Army and publishes the result of them. Those are done by private corporations in the United States. Even more crazy, uh, in Toronto, there's a little organization called the Monk Center and the Citizens Lab there, and they do what they call do-it-yourself signals counterintelligence. Um, they they uh, uh, outed a major Chinese spying operation. <coughs> Meanwhile, we're not immune from that, right? We have a whole new media organization called The Intercept devoted to outing and quite successfully outing uh, all sorts of US intelligence operations, right? So individual level small groups are playing in defense across a range of activities that we traditionally associate with states. Uh, one further example of that, the government you know, can, can, can not, is so incapable now of doing signals intelligence without the help of telecommunications companies that Congress, first in 1994 and then again in, 19, in 2007 and 2008, had to step in and pass laws affirmatively requiring telecommunications companies to give help to the government when needed in, in wiretapping and, and intelligence operations. So everybody's naked, everybody's menacing, and everybody's a critical feature of defense. That's the, that's the world that we try to lay out in the first third of this book, which is what we call the world of many-to-many -many threats and defenses. We're not there yet. 
how long it's going to be before we get how far there. It's very useful. It's not clear to me. It's very useful to think of it as an endpoint of our current technological development. So and it raises some basic questions, which I'm going to sketch out, um, and then I will open it up for, for discussion. So first basic question goes back to Thomas Hobbes and the Enlightenment political theorists. So if you think about the Enlightenment political theorists and where our idea of the state comes from, Hobbes posited that we give up a little bit of liberty to <coughs> the state, which he called the Leviathan, in exchange for a promise of protection. Uh, that is, the right to rule, the authority to rule, comes from the ability to protect people. And the protection from the Leviathan had really two elements. It actually had a lot more than two elements, but I'll be reductionist and boil it down to two. The first element was protection from predations by other people, right? People in what Hobbes called the state of nature famously had lives that were, you know, nasty, brutish, and short. But if you give up a little bit of liberty to some entity that can resolve conflicts so you don't have to kill each other, that can resolve property disputes so that you can actually keep the information, the, 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 the money and property that you make, right, and that you earn. If you uh, create that dispute resolution mechanism, which we call government, then everybody's liberty becomes more meaningful, though there actually is, in some technical sense, less of it. Second element of the Leviathan bargain, so what, what came to be called the social contract, was that other countries prey on your country. And if you don't have a sovereign entity capable of defending the, the physical parameters of the land, then some other leviathan will eat you up, right? And in the context of that time, maybe enslave you or you know, the famed trio of rape, pillage, and plunder. It would be bad, right? So the Leviathan has two functions. One is internal dispute resolution, and two is external defense. And both of them rely on the fact that you are allowing, as a polity, allowing this entity the right to rule in exchange for that protection. So here's my question. If you can be attacked from anywhere, <coughs> And if we collectively can be attacked from anywhere, is the premise still right? That there is some entity that can protect you from uh, the molecular biology student in Uzbekistan and the uh, hacker in, in Chile um, in a sufficiently meaningful way that you have confidence in and believe in the uh, cessation, the, se the cession of your liberty in any measure to that authority's right to rule. Um, hold that thought. Second question. Um, if you believe that perhaps the answer to this question is we need to beef up the Leviathan a bit. He needs to be big bit stronger of a, of a sea monster if he's going to keep the other fish in check. Um, what does that mean for what we always 
wrongly, in my view, called the balance between liberty and security, right? Does that mean you would have to create a police state, basically, or some sort of international police state in order to protect yourself? And then the third question, third big question, is what on earth do you do with the concept of jurisdiction? So if attacks can come internationally, and you know, in the conventional political theory treatment, um, geography really matters, right? You have your Leviathan over here and a different Leviathan over here. And the assumption is that each one is regulating its space. And there's some seam between them, which we call borders, that have real legal significance and have real um, practical significance. You leave one, you know, I, I keep wanting to revert to land animal metaphors, but the Leviathan, of course, is a sea monster. So you leave one swimming pool over here, and you go to a different swimming pool over here, and there's a, 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 some sort of seam between them at which the rules change. And each Leviathan is capable of enforcing the rules within some margin of error within its own domain. What if that's not true? What if, just as the United States can now reach across uh, and enforce to some degree its military will using unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, in Afghanistan and Yemen and Somalia, what if you can do that <coughs> across what should be borders with significant legal meaning? Now, we already see that happening in the cyber arena, right? Robots are just, you know, computers with, with kinetic capabilities in the real world. They're the Internet of Things, right? Um, so I think we have to ask the question, just as we today have an out-of-control cybersecurity problem that operates transnationally, why wouldn't we come to have an out-of-control robotic security program that becomes, that operates transnationally? So this is Gabby's fabulous example, which became the um, cover of the book, which is that you step into, a sp into the shower, <coughs> And you see a spider. Gabby is pathologically afraid of spiders, hence the spider. Um, and you don't know if it's a real spider or a robotic spider. And if it's a robotic spider, you don't know if it's your neighbor who is spying on you because she doesn't like your dog, or whether it's your business competitor in some foreign country who has, from a bankrupt military contractor, uh, bought a robotic assassin spider to kill you. Um, so this is our, our, our you know, outlandish um, hypothetical. And the question is, what's actually outlandish about it? So lots of universities, uh, contractors, and uh, elements of, 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 of the defense industry are already and have long been playing with insect-sized drones. They're bigger than the spider drone, and they're not yet lethal. There's no reason they can't be operated internationally. Um, so the question is, you know, we have a world now in which you can go out and build a drone. Guess what? There's never been anything that we've built that somebody hasn't tried to weaponize. So I've been saying this now for a few years, that 
if lots and lots of people are flying drones, somebody's going to put a gun on the, on the ground. The other day it happened. And of course he did what any red-blooded American would do when he did this, which is he took a YouTube video. And you can go to Lawfare, and uh, I posted it triumphantly because, you know, I've been saying this was going to happen for a long time. And it's fabulous. He has a drone. He, uh, he chases down people with it. He shoots remarkably accurately with it. Yes, it's a paintball drone, not a live fire drone. Give it a few more months, right? And then, since we're at U-Texas, let's also add that you can 3D print both the drone and the gun, right? So you don't have to be crazy paranoid like Garrett, Gabby and I are to say, well, some, you know, these are incredibly powerful technologies. They exist in the unclassified sector. This makes them profoundly different from nuclear technology. Nuclear technology, you want to go out and build a nuclear weapon tomorrow? Guess what? You can't. There haven't been too many secrets that governments have kept really well for many, many decades. But the precise design of nuclear weapons is one of them. And general access to nuclear materials at the grade you need to build a nuclear weapon is another one. So if you want to go out and do it, you just can't do it. And by the way, even if you're a nation state, it's not easy. It requires a, a major significant program over a long period of time. The number of people who can make their own biological weapons is not trivial. And it's growing very quickly. Um, and the, we are raising, for lots of good reasons, a generation of people who are very capable with robotics. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to do that. There's a lot of jobs in the world that are unpleasant, that we don't want humans that are dangerous. Uh, and we can relieve people of a lot of unpleasantness uh, through biotechnology, through robotics, through good computing. People are going to weaponize this stuff. <coughs> and when they do, the same features that make these technologies powerful for purposes other than attack, connectivity, uh, international spread, right? The same things that make things go viral. There's a main reason we use these, these bio-metaphors to describe them. They'll make them powerful as technologies of attack. And that's what we're already learning, or we already have learned, in the cyber domain. And we're going to learn it in other domains, too. Um, I want to say a few words about the balance between liberty and security, and then I will stop. Um, so there's always a temptation when you start thinking about what you're going to do in this space. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous space. And it's a dangerous space for two distinct reasons. One is there's a real chance that you will, as the 9-11 Commission put it, not connect the dots and you do everything you can and something awful happens anyway. And then you're accused, and maybe rightly so, of missing the big picture and missing, missing the game. There's also the possibility that you do a whole lot of things that are relevant to what turns out to be the real problem. And some of them can have real negative implications for people's liberty. 
And we do, after all, live in a free society that we presumably want to keep that way. And so there's an inevitable tendency, particularly when the subject of surveillance comes up, to talk about the balance, capital B, between liberty and security. And the balance works something like this. There's this lady holding a scale, and there's one tray that's the liberty tray, and there's the other tray that's the security tray. And you take a step to increase security, which means adding some sand to that security tray, and then you take away some of the liberty, um, and the balance is upset. Um, and people on all sides of this debate use this metaphor. Um, and so you'll often hear people saying things like, on the right, well, it's wartime, and in wartime we have to give up a little bit of our liberty. And on the left, you'll hear things like, um, oh, and there's always the inevitable Ben Franklin quote, right? Uh, you know, he who would give up a little uh, essential liberty in pursuit of security deserves neither liberty nor security, as though that's going to resolve any problem. <laughs> um, so here's, uh, first of all, uh, you can read about the actual history of that Ben Franklin quote, which doesn't mean anything like what people quote it to me in the book. But what I want to say is that the premise is wrong. Um, and the wrongness of the premise is very important as you start talking about new technologies and surveillance in particular. So look, if you really believe that liber liberty and security existed in a kind of zero-sum relationship with one another and were you know, in a precarious balance that marginal gains in one area always threatened to upset the other, then you would have to conclude that the most secure country in the world for the individual is North Korea, right? Because it's the least free. Um, and similarly, you might be tempted to conclude that the freest place in the world is Somalia or, or the tribal areas of Pakistan because they're the least governed, right? And so if that sound provokes gentle laughter, it's because the premise is wrong. And um, what the advocates of these positions often very earnestly miss is the central observation of Hobbes and Locke, which is that your liberty isn't meaningful in an, in an, in an environment of anarchy. And your security cannot be assured, this is more a, a Lockean observation than a Hobbesian one, um, if, if there is not a culture of liberty that your security requires. You may North Korea may secure you from street crime, but it's not going to secure you from the possibility of Kim Jong Un sending you to a labor camp, right? And so, in a real sense, these are interlocking, mutually independent, mutually dependent values, rather than values that um, uh, that that exist in a constant tension with one another. Uh, this is important because one of the tools that inevitably governments will use in order to add security to environments is surveillance. Um, so let me take an old example of this, which I think is, um, I'm not, just for the record, not advocating crucifixions, but here goes. Um, so the, um, there was an ancient world uh, um, internet 
of sorts. And it was the road system built by the Romans. A lot of the roles that we think of as the internet is playing, shrinking spaces, bringing people together, connecting communities, was in the ancient world played <coughs> uniquely by this network of Roman roads, which were elaborately well-kept, incredibly extensive, and were, unlike the prior Egyptian and Persian roads, um, were used for not merely military purposes, but also travel and trade of ordinary people. They were generally open to the public. Um, and the Roman roads were, it is very, very hard to overstate the importance of these as a way of projecting Roman culture into all over what is now Europe, um, Northern Africa, the Middle East. This whole area was just laced with these roads, Britain, um, and many of these roads continued to be used into the Renaissance era and later. So they, they were that good. And believe it or not, just like we have a cybersecurity problem, the, the ancient Romans had a road security problem. Uh, it was so bad that you can find this wonderful passage in Suetonius where he lists, quotes a document listing common causes of death. And along with plague and you know, various illnesses of old age, are bandit attacks on the roads. Um, people would travel with large armies of slaves um, to try to protect themselves. And so you build these Roman roads, you bring all these people together, but you also have to defend the platform. So the Romans had two ways of defending the platform. Uh, one was, the main one, one was that whenever they caught a bandit, they would uh, crucify him at the side of the road as a very visible uh, sign of, of the consequences. I'm not advocating that. The other one was they put sentries along the roads at regular intervals and um, they watched the traffic on the road and this was what we would call community-oriented policing. Um, and surveillance played a huge role in the way they secured this platform. So the argument that we make in this book is you have to think about, as these platforms develop, the temptation to surveil their use will be there for very good reason. It will be there for, it will be there because just as the Romans could not tolerate the use of, the, the non-availability of their roads, we will actually choose as a society that it is more beneficial to us to have the surveilled use of platforms than the non-availability of those platforms. And the question will become, what are the circumstances in which we want programmatic systemic surveillance to take place? And we will not answer that question by saying, well, we'll have a balance between liberty and security. We'll answer that question by asking a different question which is, when is surveillance liberty enhancing? And when is it liberty diminishing? Uh, and so that is a thought that I want to leave you with. Um, we have lots of time for questions and for you guys to pull the discussion in whatever directions you want to go. Yeah? Ben, let me start off uh, by saying thanks for that very provocative presentation. And, and it got me to thinking, both in reading the book and in hearing you now, I was thinking about the great philosopher Homer Simpson, who, who said, uh, uh, beer, cause of and cure of all life's problems. You've got to 
version of the story here where technology is the cause of the problems. And I'm wondering if it's also the cure to the problem. Now, one way to match that up with your thesis is to say that, well, insofar as technological disruption is distributing defensive power, then yeah, technologies, the same trends are empowering individuals to defend and attack each other. Um, but I, what I'm wondering is whether the state maybe has more capacity to take advantage of the defensive aspects of, of technology than the many individuals. Um, and I think about I think about earlier but relatively recent technological disruption of this kind, like TNT and the development of the explosives industry, and then the proliferation and democratization of explosive power, uh, planes and the technology to fly. These, these are variations of, of what's here. You can imagine in an earlier book that the future of violence, uh, aeroplanes and, and explosives and that sort of thing. Um, the state, even though that technology has diffused and empowered individuals, the state seems stronger and more central today than it was 100 years ago. So might we see the same sort of, there's a rising tide of capacity, but the state keeps staying out ahead of the individual and maybe even increasing the distance. So this is a puzzle that we struggled with a lot over the course of writing this book. And the short answer to your question is, we don't know. And different people have different hypotheses about this. So one way to say, one way to say is, hey, the, oh, sorry, let me, let me start with a background point, which is that people have been predicting the demise of the state for a long time with great confidence, and technology always plays a role in those predictions. So for Marx, you know, it was railroads and factories and, you know, the industrial production capacity of the modern 19th century state that would lead inevitably to the collapse of the state, right? Uh, to the 1990s um, uh, enthusiasts of the new web culture, the John Perry Barlows, uh, the transnational nature of the internet heralded the end of the state as we knew it. And they were wrong. Um, and in fact, they were not just wrong, they were wrong in exactly the way you described it, which is all of these things ended up strengthening the state. China <coughs> looks awfully strong, you know, partly because of its ability to control information on the internet. Um, and so I don't, I actually am not willing to say that I think this set of technological developments heralds the end of the state or any particular form of government. I, I, I think these technologies are universally empowering. And they will therefore empower the state, which has more resources uh, than any other actor, more than they empower anyone else. And so I think the first observation is, hey, it's, it's not the guys with the spider drones who were the first to use robots with lethal force. It's the United States federal government, right? And followed relatively quickly by the Israelis um, and other states. Um, and I think it is reasonable to predict that the chief beneficiary in the short term um, will be the state itself. Here's the big but. But, it is possible to increase the absolute power of the state and to diminish its relative power at the same time. So a world in which the NSA has just awesome 
technical collection ability. The um, uh, CIA runs a predator program. The military runs a predator program. But um, anonymous exists. But um, you know, on the more defensive side, Mandiant exists. But where every one of you is a publisher of your own material, um, and in which an individual can manufacture from scratch the smallpox vaccine in her basement, that's a very complicated world in terms of the distribution of power. And it's not clear at all to me whether the state's absolute increase in power relative, you know, is greater than or less than or roughly counterbalancing the uh, diminished relative power caused by the rise of everyone else. And I think that's just a big open question, um, and I don't, I don't purport to have an answer to it except to say it's a really important question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my name is Paul Pope. I'm the CIA officer in residence. Um, I'm very interested in your in your comments at the very end about the balance, the balance issue. And um, I, I I agree with you completely about the inadequacy and wrongheadedness of the current balance. And there's some other places where you see that. But I think one thing people may be getting at when they talk about that is this sort of whipsawing between you know Snowden revelations. You know, and with all the impulses to move in one direction, and then you know, post attack, all the impulses to protect us. Sure. If every, if if a, if a critical mass of informed people read your book, what kind of national dialogue would we have about this? So that's a fascinating question. So let me, I, I want let me try to answer your question very directly, and then come back to some a few little thoughts about the balance thesis. Um, I was very worried when we wrote the book that it would be understood as a uh, apologia for, uh, for increased authoritarianism. And I am in no sense authoritarian, um, and Gabby is really not. Um, and so I was anxious about that aspect of the reception of it, honestly. And, when we had the book launched, we asked our friend Ben Wisner, who's a, one of the deputy counsels at the ACLU, a very, one of, very bright civil libertarian activist. And we thought, you know, may as well have this discussion right up front. Um, and so we invited him to the book launch to speak. And Ben, uh, to our surprise, um, opened his remarks by saying he doesn't think any of the examples that we use in the book are technically technologically implausible. He thinks the he agrees with most of the book. Um, and he thinks that um, he had some criticisms, but he basically his concern was that the public debate that the book would start would not be as measured as the book was. Um, so that's part of the answer to your question. Then we started getting reviews and the review that we were, we got a very nasty review from the Wall Street Journal, which had assigned the book to um, the editor of Reason Magazine, which is a you know, libertarian magazine. And he was shocked to find out that we were statists, which in some sense, of course, we do look to the state as one of the entities uh, 
and the only entity with regulatory authority that you could imagine dealing with some of these problems. Um, and then we did an event at Harvard Law School in which Gabby's colleague, Yochai Benkler, um, who is also a civil libertarian, uh, spoke about the book and described the book as a very dangerous work um, because he saw in it exactly the set of things that we expected Ben Weisner to see in it. And so I think for a lot of civil libertarians and libertarians, the book is a little bit of a Rorschach test. And um, I think there's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't quite know how to process it. I, the reception has been much better than I expected it to be, honestly. Um, on the other hand, a lot of people do think what we would describe as being somewhat alarmed is being alarmist. And um, I don't, I hope they're right. That's the only, <laughs> only thing I know how to say. Yeah. yeah um, I, I did a quick index search on bird flu. In part, our, our son-in-law teaches the Harvard School of Public Health. He's an epidemiologist, and he's very, very concerned about avian flu. Um, and so a couple of points. One of the lead stories in today's Times is a, a 5.3 million chickens that ought to be uh, killed immediately. And one of the questions is who has the capacity to order that? And is this a taking for public use with just compensation? Or is it you know, who will bear the cost of this? Um, also, my son-in-law has been very, very active in trying to prevent some of the research that I, you know, I looked up in the index reference yeah. with regard to enhanced uh, bird flu. He thinks there's a real risk of an avian flu epidemic. Um, and you know, here you don't even have to imagine a terrorist doing it, the birds do it themselves. But it does seem to me that if you are worried about those sorts of things, and then on top of that, the idea that it might be intentional, then one does have to be authoritarian in the particular sense that you do want somebody to be able to kill the chickens or to prevent the research. And then the other meaning of authority is who is able to do this, both in the sense of having the capacity to do it and the social legitimacy to do it. If it's not the state or the United Nations, then who will it be? Right. So. Flu is a, for, like, for those who don't know, we are coming up on the 100th anniversary of the greatest epidemic in, in the history of the world. It was not the Black Death. Um, it was the 1918 flu outbreak. And this happened right at the end of World War I um, and probably contributed to the German defeat in World War I. Um, uh, somewhere between 40 and 75 million people died. Um, and people don't really remember it, especially because it's just the flu, and right? we have annual flu. And um, so for those of you who want to do something really horrible, you know, the, the 1918 flu, vex, flu uh, virus has been genetically mapped. That paper has been published, and you can go uh, learn how to recreate it if you want. Um, and there have been a number of studies, as uh, Professor Levinson uh, alluded to, about how to make flu viruses 
more contagious through respiration, you know, reduce, uh, you know, increase the lethality of them, particularly if you happen to be a ferret. Um, and um, I think the likelihood, so first of all, flu is a rapidly, uh, it's a quickly uh, evolving virus naturally. And then there's this other thing that it does tend to spread through birds, and we have a lot of birds in the world. Um, so there are a few mechanisms. One is that people handle birds and you know, new viruses transmit. And the second is, let's face it, um, genetic manipulations of the flu that will affect somebody else's crop of, of birds, but not yours, which is uh, you know, kind of devious, right? Um, can have enormous economic implications and is not that expensive to do. Uh, so there's a lot of reason to be afraid of, and also birds fly. That's the other thing about birds. They, they, they just tend to migrate a lot. Um, there's a lot of reason to be worried about it. And that's before you add the person who really wants to do something awful to the mix. Um, I agree with you. Um, I think the relative lack of authority to uh, just swoop in and say, I, and I don't, you know, I don't know that I care much if it's a takings. If it's just a, if you have to compensate somebody for five and a half million birds, I would rather that than have an outbreak of, you know, H1N2. H1N2 is not the most dangerous thing in the world from, from, from a human point of view. On the other hand, you don't really want it flapping around, so to speak. Um, and so I, I think, look, the scariest stuff in this area is the biosecurity stuff. It's the stuff that, you know, keeps, when you, when you say, this, the, the human species is not going to end because of a cyber attack. It is not inconceivable, though it's highly unlikely, to imagine something species-threatening in the biosecurity space. And I think we just have to, we really do have to think about what authorities we want different states to have, and also what level of international cooperation we're going to insist on um, just as a matter of public protection and public health. And, you know, I don't see why it should be an option for large numbers of people in California not to be vaccinated. Um, and I'm comfortable with the use of state authority to increase substantially vaccination rates. And I, you know, I do think that that's a, I know that's a controversial position. I, I, I stand by it. Yeah. Uh, my name's Martin, I'm a senior here. Um, I, I was eight years old during the 9 attacks, and something that has stuck with me since then was this sort of dichotomy that emerged between the concept of homeland security and national security. Um, and I'm curious if you could unpack that in context of these sort of diffuse threats. Um, and then also, I'll be commissioning in the Navy in like three weeks, and I have vested interest in what your thoughts are on if you could tear down the entire national security establishment, that being the IC, DOD, state, all of that, what are, you know, not departments, but what are the central principles that you would construct this new national security establishment around to deal with these sorts of diffuse threats? And then as a citizen, a sort of yes or no question, um, should we just get used to a higher risk tolerance as citizens? Just 
that's a, that's a changing awareness type that we have. So let me start with the last question because it's simpler. Uh, it's the simplest. Um, yes. Um, one. So in a world in which um, the only tools were rocks, you did not have to worry about being shot. And when you introduced the firearm, there were all kinds of benefits, right? Better access to food, um, better types of certain types of security, right? You could have armies that were better equipped. But you had to live with the possibility of getting shot. And you just had to absorb that risk as, a, as an individual. And there are risks that we all just have to absorb now. Um, you know, and if you don't like it, tough. Right? It is now possible that when you use your computer, your webcam is being directed out against you. And if you don't like it, don't use a computer. Um, when we in, in, introduce new technologies into societies, new technologies that have capacity for violence and attack, we have to ask the question, and we, by the way, we do this more subconsciously than and we do it very inconsistently. So take two 19th century and 20th, 20th century technologies, um, mass access to firearms and automobiles. Right? Both have lots of legitimate uses. Both <coughs> cause violent death. And we take the one that you can commonly use for murder, and we design a constitutional right around it. And we take the one that is commonly designed for transportation, and we evolve a complex regulatory scheme that requires licensure, um, insurance, uh, you know, points on your license, right? That's not necessarily what you would have predicted, right? If you would, um, both of them involve great utility and enhanced risk. And these technologies are the same. They might, by the way, involve lower risk overall. But they do involve assumption of certain degree of risk. And one thing that nobody can promise you is that you will not be attacked using some form or other of new technology. In fact, I can promise you the opposite. How many people here have never gotten a, a phishing attack? Right? You will be attacked using some form of new new technologies, using modalities of attack that were unavailable 20 years ago, impossible, there weren't even words for them. It will happen, it's already happened. Um, how would I tear down and rebuild the entire national security establishment? What principles? Right. So, it's a great question, and I, and I want, I, I think we have tended to take the borders of the United States very seriously. And this has a lot to do with, you know, old style Westphalian political theory, right? Where this Leviathan lives over here and rules his pond, and this Leviathan lives over here and rules her pond, and they meet here where they kind of snarl at each other and keep each other from invading <coughs> one other's ponds. Um, and that's not the world we live in anymore. Now we live in a world in which uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the United States extends wherever in the world you go. 
And by the way, if you just use a phone line that involves the United States, you're covered by that. Material support statute, if a Saudi gives money to a Yemeni Al-Qaeda member, they'll prosecute him in the United States. And by the way, if we really don't like you, we'll kill you with a drone in Pakistan, right? These are incredible exercises of, of extraterritorial jurisdiction that other countries would rightly not recognize, but they do the same things themselves. So the European Union wants to do all sorts of regulations of US companies because their activities have privacy implications for Europeans who don't really like the fact that our surveillance laws don't protect them. Um, and so all of these leviathans are now trying to regulate what goes on in each other's ponds. And one way that we had of diminishing the importance in our security vocabulary is this movement from national security to homeland security, right? Which you alluded to, let's take the concept of security and make it not so much about our borders, but about our space. Now, what we're arguing in the book is, take that a step further. You're a threat to national security. And by the way, everybody in the world is a threat to your personal security. The walls between what we used to think of as national security and health and safety are much less obvious than they used to be. Well, so that's actually good news, because we have a pretty well-developed architecture for protecting health and safety. And it involves distributed defense, right? We can't prevent every car accident. But we can say every car manufacturer has to produce cars that comport with the following safety standards. And we can say you have to wear your seatbelt. And we can say you can't drive faster than X and have the following obligations as a driver. I mean, we do a lot in the way of distributed security with respect to the automobile. And that's the direction that national security is moving. So now the obligations go to Google, to Facebook, to you personally, right? There are more obligations to banks, um, to all these different actors have obligations to create a more secure general environment. We know what that looks like. That's drug safety. That's food safety. That's a lot of other things that we don't traditionally associate with national security. But that's the direction things are moving. Yeah. So you um, remind me of a talk that I went to a few years ago. I think it was called Threat Symposium. And they had an official from the part one part of the Defense Department that's dealing with research and development and scientific um, advances. And she said, the, the official said, please don't give me a list of 400, of 400 things that could, that could kill us all. Please triage it for me. And then the keynote that followed her proceeded to throw out a list of 400 things right. that could go wrong. So I guess my question is, is and I confess I haven't, I haven't read your book yet, um, at what point do we stop saying, okay, here's just how things might happen, and when do we, like, what's the role of government in terms of maybe the best good that it could deliver would be to help start to triage the things that we really need to worry for, that we can maybe make advances towards, and then recognizing that kind of the marketplace of ideas also builds up a risk tolerance as people are exposed to. Right. So look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you 
this risk is greater than this risk. This risk is greater than this risk. I don't know. I'm not a risk analyst. You know, and by the way, you know, the biggest risk may be that an asteroid hits them. <laughs> you know, so I think the relevant question, at least as far as I'm concerned, is is a broad philosophical question. It has legal implications. It has policy implications for a lot of areas. But to me, the, the, the question is, how do you govern a world of super-empowered individuals? If you invest in the individual the capacity to do violence and to protect against violence that we have traditionally associated with the Leviathan, how do you govern that world? How do you, what, what protects that individual from other individuals and what protects other individuals and other states from that individual? And I think what you see is that if you ask the question in those terms, um, the, the specific modality of the attack that you need to worry about recedes in importance because we don't even have the foundational answer in our minds to that question. So let me give you just one, one example of this. You know, we have a very, very rich cybersecurity debate in this country. And one of the things that cybersecurity experts have been saying for a long time is cyber is different. Because in cyber, you can attack from very great distances. The power to do it has migrated to so many actors. And by the way, attribution is really difficult. Now a lot of cybersecurity <coughs> experts are saying they've gotten much better at attribution. But that's a very recent thing. So then you talk to people in the biosecurity space. And what do they say? They say biosecurity is really different. And why is it different? It's different because so many people have now the ability to do this stuff. And by the way, you can attack over really great distances, and attribution is really difficult. You realize they're describing exactly the same effect, because the effect isn't a cyber effect, and it isn't a bio effect. Technology is a mass empowerment effect. It's what happens when you give people more ability to do violence from a less accountable position. And so I think this book is, is actually not an effort to catalog all the different ways in which, you know, 100 ways to die or whatever. It's an attempt to think through what it means when the, when the relative power of the Leviathan and the other fish diminish. Yeah? Um, I went back to this idea of the obligations of national security are now on a more diverse set of actors, particularly the private sector. And I was just wondering if that is in fact the case, what is sort of the appropriate way in which private sector actors think about taking on that obligation? I'm thinking specifically of like an announcement by Google or Apple that they're making devices that the encryption of which they can't even break. What is the appropriate stance for them to take? Not necessarily on the balance between, but certainly on some sort of trade-off between the privacy users of those devices and the national security demands. So this is a really interesting question, and in some ways, of all the live policy issues right now, the encryption is the hardest. Um, so, first of all, the idea of centralized government authority over security is a relatively new. And if you go back, you don't have to go back very far in American <coughs> history before the idea of distributed defense was more norm than exception. 
Um, so for example, the Constitution has these two largely defunct um, institutions that it refers to explicitly, the <coughs> militias, right? And the other is the privateers. Um, the privateers are basically publicly sanctioned pirates who after up to through the War of 1812 would basically get a congressional commission to go attack enemy shipping. Um, and this was a function of the fact that the central government just wasn't powerful enough to you know, run a war. And so the imagined structures of how you would fight a war were really imagined to be much more distributed than we have today. Uh, so here's the problem, which was that it didn't work very well. And by the end of the War of 1812, Madison goes to Congress and he says, you know, we need a bigger standing army. And by the way, we need West Point, which had been largely fallen into disuse. And this is where the idea of the professional army really takes hold. The militias start to fade. Um, privateering is banned uh, by international treaty in the 1850s and never comes back, is never used again. In War of 1812, there was another fascinating act uh, Congress passed called the Torpedo Act. And the Torpedo Act was basically privatizing terrorism. Uh, um, it was, um, it's pretty shocking actually. It, it put a bounty, I forget how many dollars, on any British ship that any US citizen could blow up. And if you blew up a British ship, um, you could come to Congress and claim money. And lots of people did it. This would be what we would today call unprivileged belligerency. And Congress sanctioned it. Um, this is a distributed defense, right? Um, or maybe distributed offense. Um, but distributed responsibility for security. Our modern conceptions of security in the state are much more Viberian. They're much more uh, Hamiltonian, kind of in their um, and one of the things that these areas are forcing us to do is to think about questions of what our kind of modern privateers look like. What is a modern, a more, uh, what is modern distributed defense look like, right? And I think that's a really intriguing <coughs> set of questions. It's an underdeveloped idea. Now, to bring it to your question about Google and Apple, look. They have, the thinking in industry on this subject has changed a lot. A couple months after Snowden, I was on a panel uh, at the Berkman Center up at Harvard with a woman who was like the head of social responsibility for Yahoo. And she was asked, very, very thoughtful woman, she was asked by somebody in the audience, if you could encrypt all your data holdings, all your users' data, such that not even you could access them. Would you do it? This was uh, prompted by the fact that Snowden's Snowden had data on the uh, I forget the name of the name of the service that not even they could theoretically open. And she responded with horror. She said, "We would never do that um, because there are a lot of people who, whenever you put up cloud storage of any kind, they will use it to store child pornography." And it would just be irresponsible for us not to be able to respond to law enforcement requests to access 
that material. Well, fast forward a year and a half, and that's what Google and Apple are doing. Um, and I'm not criticizing them for that. They're, um, by the way, their cloud stuff they can still access. It's really the device-based stuff that they can't. Um, they're under huge pressure. There is valuable, real value to having greater encryption, um, greater security for their users. And they have to respond to an overseas constituency that does not believe, an overseas user base that does not believe that American law enforcement and intelligence are operating in good faith. Um, on the other hand, is it a good thing um, to have an ungoverned space in, you know, we generally think of ungoverned spaces as really dangerous. And one feature of ungoverned is unsurveilled. And if you cannot access um, large amounts of material, why is that different from Yemen? Um, and that's a, I think that's a genuinely hard question. And um, so I'm not answering it adequately, and that's partly because I don't know the answer. On that happy note, <laughs> we have run out of time. Ben, I believe you're going to stick around and sign some books. They're for sale in the hallway. It is a great read, The Future of Violence. Ben Wittes, thanks for being here. Thank you.